Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Trout Talk. We've got another installment for you with John Jurasek, and this week we're talking terrestrials. Thanks for joining again, John. Well, thank you, Peter. It's my pleasure to be back with you. I look forward to talking about some terrestrial insects. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's something that everyone is, we're so amped about fishing them that we don't hear some of like the background information and some of the nuance to them. So I'll be eager to hear what you have to say. I think that's true. You know, as fishermen, we typically focus on the aquatic insects and most fishermen have a general understanding of those, but uh, terrestrial insects, not so much, even though everybody's interested in them and everybody wants to fish them and catch fish on them. Yeah. For sure. So first up are spruce moths. A few of our listeners wanted to hear about them. They're a terrestrial insect that are found in Yellowstone country. Can you find them kind of elsewhere in the West and maybe just give us kind of the basics of what spruce moths are? Yes, they are found all through the West and they are just another type of terrestrial insect. They are associated with coniferous trees. So that would be trees like uh, fir trees, spruce trees, uh, some pine trees. And they're fairly widespread through the West. And they are a native insect, which is something that a lot of people don't know. They're often viewed as a pest or a parasite, but they're actually a native insect. Are they any different than the moss that you kind of like worry about eating your clothing? <laughs> uh, I guess more common moss. Well, they're related to those that eat your clothing, but yes, they're different. I think people would associate them with the moss they typically see flying around outdoor lights at night. Uh, they're a larger insect. They're about an inch long and not quite an inch wide. So they're a pretty good sized fly. And they look basically just like a moth, like uh, most people think of moths. Okay. So around Yellowstone country, which rivers can they be found on? Do you have to be right by some type of uh, pine tree? Well, some of the rivers that we find them on are the Madison and Gallatin. Uh, we especially find them around some of the area lakes. Earthquake Lake, Cliff Lake, Wade Lake, Trout Lake up in the northeast corner of Yellowstone Park, even Soda Butte Creek up there in the northeast corner also, in the stretches that have uh, coniferous trees along it. Those would be the waters that we primarily fish them on here. The lakes are definitely kind of like a sleeper tidbit of knowledge that I had kind of forgotten and you don't hear that often. Tell us a little bit about their life cycle so we know when the right time to go and fish spruce moths is. Okay, so spruce moths basically have a one-year life cycle, just like caddisflies and most mayflies. Now, there's some speculation out there that at altitude, they can have a two-year life cycle. I don't know that's a, a fact or not. It may very well be, but I'm not certain of it. But let's just assume for our purposes of a one-year life cycle. Well, guess what? They have a larval stage, a pupil stage, and an adult stage, just like a caddisfly does. The larval stage is basically a caterpillar, like we would think of butterflies having a larval stage as caterpillars. Then they close up into pupa, they metamorphose into adult, and then they hatch. Kind of similar to mayflies and caddisflies in that sense. They just happen to hatch off of trees instead of out of the water. They like burrow into the trees. They don't burrow into the trees, no. They are living on the needles and the buds and the new foliage. Now, they are not burrowers like pine bark beetles are. Yep. They live okay. on the outside of the tree, on the, on the foliage, on the needles. So do they actually eat the tree? Should they be considered a pest? 
Well, I don't know that you would consider them a pest. They are a native species that takes advantage of what nature provides them. So what they do basically is they can defoliate trees. All the larvae will eat the needles and they especially like the young needles, the, the brand new growth each year. And they can defoliate trees if there are a lot of them. And that typically does not kill the tree, though if they get defoliated over time, year after year, then that can really weaken the tree and eventually kill it. But typically they do not kill the tree, unlike a pine bark beetle. They're basically just feeding off the tree, using it as a host. And of okay. course, yes, they damage it in certain ways, but typically they do not kill the tree. Okay, so when do they end up hatching? And when are they on the water? Around this area, around the Yellowstone area, typically they start emerging in late July and run through middle of August, third week of August. That's when they are hatching as adults. Okay. How should you think of this hatch? How should you prioritize it? When can you be like, okay, I'm, I'm fishing spruce moths on the Gallatin versus like, you know, I'm going to run into a few caddis, a few mayflies, something, and hopefully I'll run into some spruce moths. That's an important point. I'm glad you raised it. So spruce moth populations are cyclical. Okay, they're not, they don't have the regularity of a mayfly or a caddisfly, for instance, or a stonefly that emerge fairly steadily year after year. They can go in long cycles. For instance, when I came here to Yellowstone area in the very early 80s, there was always talk about spruce moths and what an incredible hatch they could be and, and how they got fish rising like crazy. But I went years and years and years before I ever saw a spruce moth. And so they're just a very cyclical insect. I looked into that back in the day, and as I recall, these cycles can any, last anywhere from like three to 30 years. And a lot of it depends on weather conditions. So warm, dry conditions, much like we're getting here in recent years, uh, those cause nice outbreaks. Uh, older stands of trees tend to have outbreaks in them. Dense stands of trees are also subject to outbreaks. So a lot of it, it's a, it's a much more fickle insect than we think of typically with the aquatic insects. So the last few years around here, we've had pretty good populations of them. And I, I'm not sure what we can attribute that to, whether that's the cyclical nature of them or whether the fact that we seem to be a little warmer and drier here lately, that might've encouraged the populations. But basically you wanna be prepared for them but you don't really want to count on them to make a long answer uh, short. That's how I would summarize it. Okay. If you're coming out here at the end of July through the third week of August, you want to have some invitations. You want to be ready for them, but you don't want to bank on them. Okay. Is it more of the opportunity that like, if you do run into some spruce moths, you're going to have some consistent, nice dry fly fishing, but maybe some smaller fish versus like actually catching bigger fish? I would say that depends on how many of them are around. Big fish will eat spruce moths because it's a pretty good sized insect. Like I said earlier, that thing is about an inch long. It's a nice juicy mouthful. So if there are enough around, they will absolutely get the attention of big trout. Uh, it basically just depends on the population level. Okay, so they hatch out. How do they end up exposed to trout? I think that's pretty interesting and it's something I've pondered often. For one, I don't think they're as reliable a flyer as other insects. So they, you, you watch them fly, they're kind of erratic, a little bit out of control it seems like. So certainly wind will push them on the water. I've seen that many times. 
gusts of wind will drive them onto the water. Uh, so they're not super strong flyers. And there's also something else I want to throw out there. It's possible, and I'm just speculating here, but it's possible that they are attracted to reflected light off the water. That's something that flying ants, and I know we're going to talk about that later, flying ants end up on the water because they are attracted to reflected light off water. And so I will always wonder if a little bit of that happens with spruce moths. That's part of the reason they end up on the water. Again, pure speculation on my part, but uh, the bottom line is, is that they do end up on the water, and they can end up in the water in good numbers. And fish take notice. Okay. How should we go about fishing them? Basically, you want to fish them around the trees, well, around their habitat. And so around here, the trees that they would typically be associated with are Douglas fir, uh, blue spruce, Engelmann spruce, some of the true firs like subalpine fir or white fir. They can occasionally be associated with pine trees if those pine trees are mixed in with other trees. But basically around here, we're looking for Douglas fir and spruce trees. And so if you have those along the stream or lakeshore, that's where you're probably going to see spruce moss. And that would be a good locale to try them in. Cool. So because they're cyclical, it's probably valuable to check in with a fly shop somewhere and just be like, hey, has this been a good year for spruce moss? I think so. And look, if you just want to blind fish the imitations, you don't even see any naturals, but you're in the right habitat, go ahead and give it a go. Because I think something we overlook is, I believe that, especially with the older trout, there is institutional memory. So they get to this point in the year, guess what? They know what spruce moths are. And I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, they're looking for them, but they certainly, I believe, recognize them. Even if you're not seeing a lot of them, if you're in the right habitat, I'd tie one on and give it a go, see what happens. Cool. That's a good optimistic way to think about it. Okay, last question on spruce moths. Are there any fly patterns that you like best or you feel like work best for them? Does a particular pattern matter? I don't think the exact pattern matters. If you've got something roughly the right size in the a reasonable color, and the color of these things is kind of an orangey, tannish, brownish color, if you've got something in the ballpark there in the right size and you want a fly that floats well, so maybe with a lot of hair on it, as long as you're in the ballpark, you're good to go. You don't so have to get super specific with an imitation. So an elk hair caddis would work? Sure. Size 12, 14 elk hair caddis. It's got a lot of hair on it. You bet it'll work. Cool. Thanks for giving us the rundown on that. And thank you to our listeners for reaching out and asking about them. Yeah. Hey, I think that's cool. Someone asked about those. Yeah. We should all take an interest in the insects, right? That's, they are the basis. They are the root of our sport. And to not take an interest in them to me seems like, well, hey, why are we even fly fishing? They're just an integral part of it. So I love that someone was out there wondering about them. Yeah, it's one of those things that we just hear about and often don't get the background. So it's good to get into it. So next, let's talk beetles. Ah, the beetle. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk beetles. <laughs> so beetles, everybody knows about them. A lot of people fish them. Every fly shop has them. But like spruce moths, there's just not a ton of talk about what are these beetles? You know, what size are all these, the natural beetles? What's creating this, this fishing opportunity? So um, I guess from your perspective around Yellowstone, what beetles do you have? How do they end up becoming important? How do they get on the water? 
Well, first we should point out that beetles are one of the most successful orders of insects that there are. There are hundreds of thousands of beetle species in the world. There are thousands of beetle species in, the, in North America. They are just incredibly successful insects. And so, believe me, I am no expert on beetles. There are so many species around here, you'd have to devote years of study to learn them. They are vastly more extensive than mayflies, caddis, or stoneflies. So, uh, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of different sizes. How do they end up on the water? I think they're just a little bit clumsy. You know, wind blows them off grass. Who knows how they end up getting in the water, but they do. And fish certainly love them. Why do they love them? <laughs> just, they're just a juicy meal. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if it's something to, like with ants, you know, trout love ants. And why is that? Who knows? Whether it's sort of a treat for them, something they don't see as regularly as aquatic insects, I don't know. But uh, they, even if there aren't a lot of beetles on the water, just like with the spruce moss and with ants, I believe there's some institutional memory in these fish. And they know what they are, even if they're not seeing a lot of them. And they don't pass up many opportunities to eat them. Through the season, what size beetles do you fish? A little bit of that depends where I'm fishing. Uh, the nature of the water, how spooky or selective the trout might be. But in general, I'm fishing anywhere from about a size 8 to an 18. Eight to, an 18 is very small beetle. How yeah, do you that see would be, that thing? Right. They're difficult to see. That would be for a really flat water situation where fish are spooky and being very picky about what they're eating. Sometimes a little tiny beetle is the right answer for that. Wait, let me backtrack. Did you say 8 to 18? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah oh that's a very big beetle. big beetles oh yes yeah. <laughs> is that are like... we recording here or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah i want to talk about big beetles tell us about big beetles well look there are some monster beetles out here i don't think people appreciate how big they can be and if you want to pound up a big trout well especially if you're blind fishing a size 18 beetle isn't the answer you fish something big, like an 8 or a 10, well, that's going to get the attention of any trout, even the big ones, and they'll come up through a lot of water for a beetle that big. So I know people are often look at those and think, oh, that's, that's kind of a joke. Those are tied for fishermen. No, that's not true. Those are tied for big fish. <laughs> you, you, cannot, you cannot be afraid of fishing a big beetle. There's a great searching pattern this time of year. So are you telling me that you've seen beetles that big regularly? Just flying around or crawling around yes absolutely they're out uh, there they end up on water you'd be surprised no. that's that's good to know that brings me to i don't have a ton of interesting fishing stories but this is one of the few i was fishing green drakes on a river in yellowstone and i was just walking the bank and i happened to see a quite large cutthroat definitely the biggest cutthroat maybe the biggest cutthroat I'd seen, but there was a good hatch of uh, green drakes and I put a green drake over this fish maybe eight times and it just had no reaction. And I was like, well, I'm going to try a beetle. And it rose and took the beetle without thinking twice. Yeah, Why? Stories like that, stories like that are legion. Absolutely. Everybody, everybody with any experience at all has probably had some sort of similar experience to yours. Yeah. And I think it just speaks to the overall power and attractiveness of a beetle to a trout. 
but it doesn't in a way you know it doesn't square i guess he could that fish could have just been taking green drake nymphs and had no need to rise anyway but he's like well for a beetle i will yeah hey we're never going to know for sure right all we can say is that beetles catch trout (laughs) (laughs) part of the reason i wanted to talk about them is because it's kind of like it's kind of this like cool underground phenomenon you could go on any river any trout river probably in the u.s in late july and august and fish a beetle and probably catch fish i'd be really surprised if you couldn't and again i think that speaks to the diversity and the widespread nature of beetles in this country they're everywhere they are in all kinds of habitats so yes of course trout everywhere in the country uh, at some point or another are seeing beetles okay and my next question i think kind of speaks to terrestrial fishing in general if you don't live in a trout mecca and you kind of like follow them on instagram or read a newsletter people are like hoppers are happening big fish are, are rising to them and that's kind of like all you hear and and i just wonder can you give us some detail about how you should be approaching that type of fishing well a lot of it depends on the water you're fishing. So for if you're fishing a small meadow stream, for instance, you can fish a beetle anywhere on that little stream. You don't have to concentrate along the shores like you might with a larger river. So you gotta think about the size of the water and where on that water a beetle may end up. On a big river, yeah, I think you're thinking about grassy banks, uh, fishing that primarily. Yeah, sure, you can make a few casts out into the middle, nothing lost there, but I'd concentrate on the shoreline a small stream, you might cover the entire stream with a beetle pattern because they could end up anywhere on that stream. How long might you have to wait? I feel like one of the hardest things when you're blind fishing is just keeping your confidence in that you'll eventually find a fish. I think that depends on what the general activity or feel of the day is. I say typically out here, if you fish a beetle for 30 minutes and you haven't moved a fish, okay, maybe we want to try something else especially if you feel like you fished that water well and made good casts, good presentations, I would expect to move a fish easily within 30 minutes. That, that would be a kind of an eternity to fish one and not move a fish. And that's when I would think about changing it up. Are there any particular beetle patterns that you like? Well, beetles are like spruce moss and kind of like ants, which I know we're going to talk about. There's a million different patterns. Most of them are derivations of each other. You don't have to get very complicated. If it's black and sort of uh, elongate, varying widths, you're in, you're in the ballpark. If you want to put legs on it or antenna or whatever, that's great. The only thing I'd point out is that beetle patterns, even large ones, can be really hard to see. They float low in the water. And so I think it's always nice to have some sort of high-vis element on the fly, whether that's a little bit of foam on top or a bright yarn post. That makes a difference in seeing them. And that obviously, when we can see our fly, I think we fish it better. I want to make sure that I have something on my beetles that I can see it. Otherwise, I don't get too carried away with the patterns. Okay, good to know. And can you give us just one more time, kind of a window that you should feel comfortable fishing a beetle if you're in Yellowstone country, like you have beetles are around and you have a good shot of catching fish? You can use a beetle... Yeah, sure. Any, you can use a beetle any month of the year here because as soon as spring rolls around, guess what? Beetles are out and they're active. But typically when we think Lake May and June around here, that's 
an abundance of aquatic insects. And so we think less about beetles at that time of year. Now that we're moving into August and September, where the aquatic insects aren't quite as numerous, then I think we think more about terrestrials. So that's typically when we fish most of them, would be now through September, but you can use them any month of the year because the naturals are out and they're around. Okay, good to know. Now let's talk ants. Ah, yes, the elusive ant. Can be very elusive. I guess to start, I've heard people say that there are broods of ant that don't sprout wings and other ones do sprout wings, but I've also read that all ants, once they reach a stage of maturity, sprout wings and then they recolonize. Do you know kind of what the, where the truth is on that? I think it's a little bit of both. I am no expert on ants. So I am certain there are probably some ant species that never take the winged form. But most ants have a winged and unwinged stage. They develop wings when it's time to leave their nest and mate and start new colonies. That's when they develop those wings. And right, they develop them so that they cover vast amounts of ground, spread out into new territory and create new colonies. And also being able to fly allows insects, ants from different colonies to breed. So it avoids a little bit of inbreeding there. Okay. I fished a swarm of flying ants on April 1st in Pennsylvania once. It was super cool. Yeah, I'll bet. In Yellowstone country, much colder, high elevation, and I assume that the season is condensed. When can you fish ants when they're not winged versus ants when they are winged? Well, let's start with the winged phase around here. So typically, ants are mating and recolonizing here really the month of August. And if you had to narrow that down, you would say the last two weeks of August. That's really when we see most of the flights of ants. But because there are different species of ants and they mate and fly at different times of the year, you could run into them anytime from July, August, maybe even into September. But typically, if you just want to really sort of synopsize it, we would pick the last two weeks of August as the prime time for flying ants around here. Okay. And what about ants? If they're not flying, are they even relevant to fishing? Yeah, I think they're like beetles. They live along the margins of water. And guess what? Wind, weather, clumsiness ends up getting some of those individuals on the water. So ants are, you can find ants on the water any month of the year, starting in spring and May when they come out of, a, out of the ground and they're active. And so we can fish ants anywhere from June all the way into early October here. Okay. One place that we often hear about fishing ants is the railroad ranch section of the Henry's Fork in Idaho. Specifically, people talk about honey ants. How predictable is an ant fall there? Typically, pretty predictable. But ants, like other insects, are subject to seasonal variability. So there are a few things that are critical to ant flights, and that's warm, calm conditions. That's when they're going to fly. You get cold weather, wind weather, ants aren't going to be flying in that. So if you have good weather, you're here in August, there's a good chance you're going to see them on the Henry's Fork. The honey ant is an interesting insect. There's been speculation it's a wasp, an aquatic wasp. I don't know of anyone that can say with definity that it is or isn't an ant. Um, I haven't taken the time to research it myself. All I know is that they get on the water and we 
treat them just as a flying ant. There are a couple different sizes. Now, we wonder, are those different species? Are they the same species? One of the things that happens with ants is that the queens are much larger than the males. Okay? So it's only the queens and the males that have wings. Queens are much larger. So a lot of people will look at that large honey ant, a size 14 or 16, and say, well, hey, this is a totally different species than these 18s. Okay. Maybe, maybe not, maybe not, because the males are smaller. Again, I don't have enough specific knowledge of that to say one way or another. But the bottom line is, is that there's a lot of ants down there, and, uh, and those fish love them. Are there other places you can, like, count, really count on an ant fall? Because I, I haven't heard, the Henry's Fork is like the one place that I've heard people talk about, like, well, I think I'm going to see ants today. It's probably our most reliable river for them. But the Madison River down below Quake Lake, that can get some tremendous ant flights as well. I've seen tremendous ant flights on the Yellowstone in the park, in the northeast corner of the park on a stream like Slough Creek. So they're, they're very widespread because ants are very widespread. The flights can take place in a lot of, a lot of locations. Okay, and, and like beetles, not really sure why fish love them, but they do. They love them like you just can't believe. I'm not sure there's anything they'd rather eat than ants. I don't know why that is. I wish I knew. <laughs> but you get flying ants or even any kind of ant on the water, winged or otherwise, and you can be certain trout are going to take them. Okay, yeah. so even if you don't see them, if it is August, it's probably worth blind fishing. I think so. Ant. Oh, and I, you know, another body of water that we see them on here too, that I overlooked mentioning is Heaven Lake get some tremendous ant flights. Quake Lake gets good ant flights as well. So you don't want to neglect the lakes. They can happen. Yeah, that's good to know. I've heard people say that fish, especially on lakes, can be super picky about foam ants and that they'll only eat dubbing bodied ants. Do you think there's any truth to that? In my experience, there is no truth to that. I've had incredible success on lakes with foam ants, as long as it was the right size looked like an ant, simulated one to the fish. I think that's what they were taking it for. And yeah, there's no problem at all fishing foam ants. Okay. And of course, like many flies, you know, there's, there's a million variations of those. You tie them out of foam, dubbing, whatever. Different sizes, different configurations. Um, again, I don't think you have to get too fussy with fly pattern. Uh, they can get very choosy on size, though. So I think if you come out here this time of year, you want to have a variety of ant sizes. And by that, I'd be thinking 14 down to 20. That should cover most situations. Okay. Well, awesome. It sounds great. Uh, very useful advice for, for everyone, I would think. Thank you for covering terrestrials. You know, there's one thing, if I might add, Pietro, that's yeah. uh, I, I think important here. So one of the questions that always arises is, why do ants get on the water? Why are these flying ants ending up on the water? And it's a question that's, that many of us have wondered for years. And uh, I've looked into it a little bit. Uh, I found a reference at one point. I can't give it to you now off the top of my head. But it suggested that ants were attracted to light reflected off the river. They were drawn to that. And that's why they ended up on it. I don't know if that's true or not. I have had several entomologists tell me, well, ants just aren't that great of flyers. They can just end up on the water because uh, they figure they can make it over and they can't. 
they're just not that strong a, a flyer. But I'll tell you this, I, I kind of love the idea of the reflected light theory because I can tell you that I have had tremendous ant flights on my driveway. <laughs> and my driveway is a really light concrete and it kind of reflects sunlight. And so when I saw that theory out there, I thought, oh, hey, I wonder if my drive is reflecting that light and drawing those ants in here because I've had some tremendous flights land on my drive. <laughs> maybe that was coincidence. Maybe they were attracted to it. I don't know. But it's one of the interesting things about their behavior um, that I think remains unanswered to this day. So a little food for thought there. I think you're the only person paying attention to ant flights landing on your driveway. <laughs> <laughs> they fell in such great numbers that I could not help but see them. <laughs> uh, well, that's awesome. Um, Glad that you have such attention to detail to share so much knowledge with us. Oh, sure. My pleasure. For what it's worth, I, again, I'm no expert on either the ants, the beetles, or the moss, but, but I try to pay attention to what's going on around me, and, uh, and I try to learn what I can on those. And um, That's just part of being a fly fisherman to me. We should all take an interest in the insects. For sure. It definitely enriches the sport. It's, it's awesome to know the background. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate you. Again, let us know if there's anything you want to hear about. John, thanks so much for coming on. Peter, thank you and for inviting me again. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. And again, I'll look forward to doing it in the future. Thank you. All right. Take care, everyone.